that? Good morning, everyone. Welcome to our worship service this morning. We're here to worship the Lord. In fact, we're going to start our service by calling each other to worship. We'll do it with a responsive reading of Psalm 100. Then we'll sing a song that's a great call to worship song. So um, if you're in the foyer, come on in and find yourself a seat. Welcome to those of you who are joining us online. And let's call each other to worship now with Psalm 100. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness and come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good, and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. Stand. to worship him and joy to, to be here with you this morning. 
If you're new or visiting, my name is Tim. I'm the senior pastor here at Three Lake Evangelical Free Church, and we are glad that you are here with us. A couple things to bring to your attention, kind of a little schedule for our morning. So we'll have this worship service now, and then at 10.30 we will have our, our Sunday school hour. And at that time, downstairs, there'll be Sunday school for kids. Up here in the sanctuary, we'll be discussing the book Essential Christianity by J.D. Greer. So some of you have read that, and you'll be part of that conversation. If you don't know what that's about but are curious, you're welcome to come and just listen to that conversation. Otherwise, in the library, Eric will be leading a sermon discussion, kind of asking questions, talking through some of the things I'm going to preach on here in a little bit. Following that Sunday school hour, we will meet back in here for our quarterly meeting. We invite you to be a part of that. We'll vote on new members, and we'll, I'll share an update about something going on. Pastor Ian will share an update about something going on. Um, we'll give a few more updates about things coming up in the life of the church. A couple other announcements to bring to your attention is that in the back, on your way out this morning, you'll see there's a, there's a box kind of on the back, along the back wall in the foyer with a place to put gifts for our young adults who are off at of college or off doing other things that have come out from our church. So we just want to bless those young adults as they are venturing out into the world. And so if you want to put card or small gifts in that box, we will kind of grab all those things up and we'll send out gift boxes to them in a couple weeks. The final thing to bring your attention is that next Saturday, Elaine Altman, who's a longtime member here, will, will be visiting in town. And so if you want to uh, see her, visit with her, she'll be in town. There's details about where and when you can see her on the back of your bulletin. As we continue in our time of worship this morning, would you join me in time of prayer? Father, we thank you for the chance to be together, to join together with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ to worship you. Take a break from the busyness of life and to come and to fix our hearts and our minds on you and your goodness. Your love for us and your grace towards us in Jesus. Father, I pray for each one of us here that as we enter and continue this time of worship, that our hearts would be transfixed and giving you praise. Pray that you would be honored by all that takes place here this morning, that our words that we sing would be a genuine overflow of the affection our hearts feel for you. We would not just sing the words because they're on the screen, but they would be genuine worship of you. Pray for the people here who are hurting, whether it's 
to the physical pain or emotional pain or other kinds of pain they may be feeling, that you'd, that you'd be with them, that you'd be at work, give them comfort and peace where it's needed. Father, for those who may be walking in this morning feeling distant from you, would you do a work this morning to draw them to yourself, to help them feel your love for them and their, your grace towards them? Father, would all that take place here this morning start to glorify you? Praise on Jesus' name. So we're going to continue our worship in song. We're going to sing some songs that allude to John's book of Revelation where he had a vision of what things were like in heaven. So let's stand together and let's continue in our worship. Scroll, the Lion of Judah, 
good the grave. He is David's root and the Lamb who died to ransom the slave. From every people and tribe, every nation and tongue, He has made us a kingdom and priest to God to reign with the Son. Is He worthy? Is He worthy of all blessing and honor and glory? Is He worthy? Is He worthy? Is He worthy of this? He is. Worthy is the 
So I'm, you guys can be seated. Uh, I wanted to give you guys an update on a recent youth trip that we took. So February 10th through the 12th, we went to Forest Springs Camp and Conference Center. Um, and to help me talk about this, I asked some youth to come up. So all you who wanted to come up can come up. And those that I didn't talk to that want to come up, you can come up too. All right, so uh, give your name and how many years you've been to Winterfest and your favorite part. Okay. I'm Zach. I've been there one year, and my favorite part was probably tubing. You like tubing? Mainly the bullet, right? The fast one? Um, did you fall off? You did? You did fall off. Yeah, I did. Okay. It hurt. It hurt? Mm -hmm. But you're still here. Yeah. All right. My name is Cohen. I've been to Winterfest two and a half years. <laughs> um, why? Why the half? Uh, chip tooth. But but this year you made it all the way across the parking lot. Um, my favorite part was broomball. Why, why do you like the broomball so much? Um, because the ice is really nice and it's like inside. My name is Melanie. I've been to Winterfest four times, and my favorite part is the cross-country skiing trails. My name is Erica. I've been to Winterfest two years, and my favorite part is probably also cross-country skiing. Um, my name is Becca. I've been to Winterfest one year, and my favorite part's probably tubing, too. So if you notice, we had if the group picture that comes up. We had 27 people go total, so five leaders, 22 kids. The really cool thing is if you look around, you will notice some youth sitting out here and up here, but you will not recognize most of them that were in that picture. So most of the kids that went are not here on Sunday mornings, but they do come on Wednesday nights and that kind of thing. So um, it was really, really good. Now, here's the question for all of you. Do you remember the theme for the weekend? Yeah, yeah, pretty close. Yeah, God's family. That was, that was close. Yeah, it was uh, branded, if you remember. But there you go. So um, it was it was a great weekend, and um, thank you to our awesome leaders, Janie Wendt and Chase and Emma and Cami, and uh, we survived. Everyone made it there and back, and it was exciting. So yeah, all right, you guys sit down. Good job. Great report. Uh, how many of you old people wish you'd gone and played broomball? <laughs> All right. Yeah, I gave up broomball a few years ago. 
All right, so we're going to continue on our worship. We're going to sing the song, Goodness of God, one of my favorites, I think many of your favorites. Um, Psalm 135, there's a great quote from that. It says, Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Celebrate his lovely name with music. So that's what we're going to do right now. And, you know, um, we also know from Scripture, it says, All good gifts come down from the, our Father in heaven. The Father of lights is the word in Scripture. So this song is not about the fact that God sends us nothing but good things all the time. We have trouble. You know, we're all subject to the laws of physics. There's sin in the world, and we make poor choices sometimes. We sin and we suffer consequences of that. But, you know, I can't sing this song without getting choked up because I think back on my life and realize that God's goodness has been so great in my life that he's been there when things have been hard, but there's every all these good gifts that come down. You know, we have the beautiful woods. We have sunrises and rainstorms that grow us food and just lots of great things. Everything that you enjoy in life, we acknowledge in the song, comes from God's hand, that he is good to us. And he has also been good to us in his love for us, that he has given us the hope of an eternity free from the laws of physics, maybe, and certainly from the consequences of sin. So if you are able, you, you know, you can do whatever posture you want for this song. If you want to seat, you want to kneel, you want to stand, you want to come in the mosh pit and join us, all of that is fine. But let's sing together of the goodness of God. Goodness 
If you are nerdy like I am, then like no one's that nerdy. But if you're a little bit nerdy, like then you may have heard like there was kind of some controversy recently on an episode of the TV show Jeopardy. So on the February 20th episode, right, the following clue appeared. The clue right here: this British national anthem that has the same mel- melody as "My Country, Tis of Thee." That's the name of the British National Anthem. And the contestant who buzzed in first answered with, What is God save the Queen? 
And the host of the show, Mayim Bialik, accepted the answer and moved on. There's just one small problem, right? Which is that as of September 9th, 2022, that's no longer the right answer. Right? The right answer is now, God saved the king. Because right? on September 8th, Queen Elizabeth died, Charles became king until the national anthem switches from God save the queen to God save the king. But of course, like Elizabeth was queen for 70 years. And so there's just like 70 years of mental ingrained memory to overcome. And like she said the answer, the judges heard the answer, no one thought anything of it, and they just simply missed it and gave her credit for the right answer. But here's what I find kind of most interesting in all of this, right? That like, at that story shows, and at the official changing of the national anthem shows, like, no one disputes today right, that Charles is the king of England. He is the monarch. He is the king of the United Kingdom. And yet, even though everyone agrees he's the king right now, on May 6th of this year, much of the United Kingdom will stop. Right, hundreds of millions of people from around the world will tune, on, tune in on their TVs to watch what? the coronation of King Charles III. That just doesn't make sense, right? No one disputes that Charles is the king now. And yet, they'll have a coronation in May. Right? According to one estimate I saw, the United Kingdom plans to spend $110 million on this coronation. Even though everyone agrees he's already king. Right? And if we're honest, right, King Charles is barely a real king. Like, when it comes to authority, like, King Charles is about as much of a king as Dr. Pepper is a doctor. <laughs> like, like his, historically, being a king means that you have complete authority over your subjects. And King Charles has, like, no authority over his subjects. So the question then becomes, like, why? Why do we go through all this fuss, all this expense to have this big, fancy coronation in order to put on an event that only reiterates what everybody already knows, right? that King Charles is a king in name, at least. And the answer seems to be that when it comes to royalty, we just kind of expect pomp and extravagance and ostentatious displays. It just kind of comes with the royal territory. We expect these big visual displays that highlight how important the king is. That's just one of many reasons why that Jesus, then, is so unique. He's not just a powerless figurehead king like King Charles. He is the all-powerful king of the universe. And yet when he shows up on earth, right, there's no coronation, there's no ostentatious displays of his royalty. All that greets Jesus when he shows up as king is rejection. God had promised his people a thousand years before Jesus that one day he would send a new king, a new David who would sit on Israel's throne forever. And what we've seen over and over and over again throughout the Gospel of Luke is that Jesus is the answer to that promise. He is that coming king. Way back in the very first chapter of Luke, the angel Gabriel appears to Jesus' mother Mary, and he says to her, 
He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. From the very beginning, we're told that Jesus is this long-promised coming king who will reign over Jacob's descendants forever, who will reign over Israel forever. And the rest of the book of Luke kind of bears that out. He's the coming king, but yet he's not what anyone expected the coming king to look like. He's not what anyone expected it. They waited for God to fulfill his promise to send a new David. And so what we see in, in this week's passage, we're in Luke 23 this week, looking at verses 1 through 12. What we see in this passage is that when Jesus comes out and declares himself the king, right, the promised king, when he makes that declaration, almost no one believes him. And yet what Jesus declared in, in this passage and in his and he proved true in his resurrection is that he is indeed the long-awaited king who will one day sit on David's throne forever. And the reason that he can sit on David's throne forever is that he is not just any king, but that he is the sinless king. The Bible makes clear over and over again that, that, that death is not natural, but that death is rather the consequence of sin And so through his sinless life, Jesus defeats death, and he can reign forever, not just for his lifetime, but forever and ever. So this morning, we're going to walk through the first 12 verses of Luke chapter 23, and we'll see three things about Jesus. First, we'll see that Jesus himself affirms that he is indeed the king, the promised king. Then we'll see that his sinlessness is affirmed by the fact that not even the Roman ruler can find any reason to condemn him. And finally, we'll see that after he affirms that he is the king, he stands silent in the face of further questions. So we'll start looking at this passage in Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 1, which says, Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. Just a reminder of where we are in in this story, last week Jesus was arrested and he was put on trial before the high priest and before the Jewish religious leaders. And they were convinced of his guilt because he affirmed that he was the Son of God. And to them, that was a, a blasphemous claim. Because it's a blasphemous claim, then he deserved to die. So the Jewish leaders are convinced that Jesus deserved and needs to die. But there's just one problem. Israel is now under Roman occupation. And as they're under the authority of Rome, only Rome could order someone to be executed. Israel didn't have that power in and of itself. And so the Jewish leaders bring Jesus to Pilate. And Pilate's the, the Roman governor over the region of Palestine where this is all taking place. And so Israel is under Pilate's authority. He's the one who can issue a death sentence. If we pick up in verse 2. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. And just notice how the, the charges against Jesus change. And the reason that the Jewish there wanted to 
wanted to kill Jesus was that he had claimed to be the Son of God. They wanted to kill him for, for blasphemy. But the Jewish leaders know right, that, that Pilate is not going to issue a death sentence over religious infighting. The Jewish leaders need to convince Pilate that Jesus is a threat to Rome, not just to Judaism. So when they bring him before Pilate, they say, we found this man subverting our nation. And by our nation, they mean not Israel. They mean Rome. They mean like, hey, we're on your team. They're subverting our Rome nation. We can see that when they go on to specify how Jesus is subverting the nation. They say, like, he opposes payment of taxes to Caesar. He claims to be Messiah, a king. So they're saying, right, they, they bring Jesus to Pilate. They're saying, hey, this Jesus is, is trying to set himself up as king over Israel. He's trying to lead a rebellion that would remove Rome from the picture. So they come before Pilate, and they're like, but us, Pilate, Pilate we are just your humble Religious leaders, we're on Team Rome. And we just want you to be aware of what this man is doing, because we're on your side. Like, look, how, look how great we are, because we're bringing this guy to you. Like, aren't we great? Oh, and by the way, we think you should kill this guy. The pilot heard all this, right? and he turned to Jesus, and in verse 3 he says, the pilot asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? He just asked the question, point blank. And look how Jesus responds. You have said so, Jesus replied. That response requires a little bit of explaining. In our English translation, Jesus' reply there seems kind of non-committal. Like, you have said so, right? I, I neither confirm nor deny these accusations against me. Like, you say it, your word, not mine. In our, in our legal system, right, the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution protects you from having to testify against yourself. And if you're in court and you're asked something, but the honest answer would incriminate you, you can plead the Fifth. So back, in, back in 2009, the White House was having a, a state dinner for the Prime Minister of India. So you can imagine that there are all kinds of high-ranking officials at this state dinner and so you'd expect, like, security is exceptionally tight because there's all kinds of important people there. And so it was surprising to pretty much everyone when it was discovered after the fact that Michaela and Tariq Salahi, a couple from Virginia, had gained access to this event and even met President Obama despite not being invited. There's a picture of Michaela shaking hands with President Obama. The uninvited showed up at the state dinner. And as you might imagine, there's a lot of interest in knowing how the Salahis gained entrance into this event. People wanted to get those security holes rectified, and so they, they called a congregational hearing of the, the National uh, the Homeland Security Department. Right? And they, were, they placed the Salahis under oath, and they asked them over and over again, how did you get into this event? But answering those questions would have admitted guilt into sneaking into the White House, and so, and the Salahi, they were trying to claim it, it's all a big misunderstanding, they thought they were invited, blah, 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 or they don't want to explain how they got in. And so, instead of explaining how they got in, they, they pled the Fifth Amendment over and over and over again. Like 32 times in total, they pled the Fifth Amendment during that, that hearing. 
When we read Jesus' reply in this passage, Jesus says, you have said so. It to our ears, or at least to my ears, can sound a little bit like he's pleading the Fifth Amendment. But that's not what's going on here. So please, don't go home and think to yourself, what was the sermon about today? And then like, think about, like, oh yeah, Patrick Tim talked about pleading the Fifth Amendment, and so that must be what Jesus did. Right? No, like, to be clear, I'm telling this story, one, just to kind of hopefully keep you a little bit engaged. And two, to highlight the fact that Jesus is not doing that. He's not pleading the fifth. In fact, Jesus is affirming Pilate's question. One commentator puts it this way. We cannot know for certain how Pilate understood the response, but in the mouth of Jesus, the phrase is not noncommittal and ambiguous. With this response of, you have said so, Jesus is saying, yes, like, I am the king of the Jews. Right? Which may well lead us to think, like, well, like, now Pilate has no choice but to give the Jewish leaders what they want. Now he must condemn Jesus to death. Or he just admitted to being the king of the Jews. Like, Pilate's going to have to declare his guilt. But as we'll see in a minute, Pilate doesn't do that. In fact, he'll say, I find no basis for a charge against this man which may seem a bit perplexing. How can Pilate allow someone who is claiming to be the king of the Jews live? Certainly he must, he must see Jesus as a traitorous insurrectionist. But the Gospel of John gives us a little more detail into the, the conversation that takes place between Pilate and Jesus. In John chapter 18, starting in verse 33, we read about their exchange. Pilate then went back inside the palace and he summoned Jesus and he asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked? Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? And here's Jesus' fuller answer. He says, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Jesus said, yes, I am a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. My, my kingdom is a heavenly kingdom. If my kingdom were of this world, would my followers have allowed me to be arrested? Would I be standing before you in chains, Pilate? If, I, if my kingdom were of this world, like, I'm a terrible revolutionary. I'm doing a terrible job fomenting revolution. Jesus' kingdom is pointed as that it's not of this world. Jesus' kingdom is a heavenly kingdom. Which is why Paul can say in Philippians that for all of us who belong to Jesus, our citizenship is in heaven. Our king is the king of heaven. Therefore, our citizenship is in heaven. But make no mistake, Jesus is king. Which means that for, for all of us who claim to follow Jesus, the question that we must constantly ask ourselves is, am I really living like Jesus is king? Back in Luke 9, Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. When you hear that, does your heart say, yes, like, 
Jesus is my king, and because he is my king, I will gladly deny myself and follow him? Or are there other things that sit on the throne of your heart? Is Jesus king? Or is your personal comfort king? Is Jesus king? Or is money king? Is Jesus king? Or is popularity or influence king? If you call yourself a follower of Jesus, is it evident from your life that he is king? One of the final commands that Jesus gave his followers before he ascended to heaven was this. He said, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. So Jesus commands, go tell people about me. Reach out to people, teach them about me, and then invite them to follow me. That's a command from Jesus. Did you hear that? and obey it as a command from your king? Or do you hear it as benign advice that can be safely ignored if you're uncomfortable with telling somebody about Jesus? Is it a command from a king, or is it benign advice? When Jesus says, love your enemies as yourself, when Jesus says, turn the other cheek, when Jesus says, give generously, when Jesus says, don't judge, is your heart's response as you command, my king? Or is it, eh, we'll see. Far too many people come to Jesus for the benefit that he offers, right, but with no interest in allowing him to reign as king in their life. But the two can't be separated. They go hand in hand. If Jesus is savior, then he is also king. If you're like me, you hear that list of commands that Jesus gave, you quickly become aware of all the times that you've failed to obey the commands of your king. Like for me, I start to feel guilt and I start to fear that the king will reject me. Which is why the second thing we see about Jesus in this passage is so important. In verse 4 we read, then Pilate announced to the chief priest in the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. And of course, Pilate's statement here is particularly concerned with whether or not Jesus is guilty of the charges that the Jewish leader brought against him. But it is noteworthy right, that a Roman governor who has no reason to do Jesus any favors and who would probably be better off personally if he just capitulated and gave into the pressure from the Jewish leaders. He feels the need to say, I find no basis for a charge against this man. And we'll see in coming weeks, Pilate has his own failures and foibles, and he's not a good guy, but this statement is important. Right? I find no basis for a charge against this man. Pilate, upon his investigation finds Jesus innocent. And this declaration by Pilate points us to a truth that we see affirmed all over the place in the Bible. Which is that Jesus is sinless. 
Not only is Jesus innocent of the charges that the Jewish leader brought against him here, he is utterly and completely sinless. Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. 1 Peter 2.22 He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. And this sinlessness of Jesus is foundational to our faith. It's not just because Jesus being sinless made him a perfect role model for us to follow. Because of what Jesus came to do. He came to take away our sins, to die in our place. But the only way that works is if he himself was sinless. So my Bible reading plan for the year, reading through the Bible, I just finished up the book of Deuteronomy, which is the last book in what the Jewish people call the Torah or the, the books of the law. So it's the first five books of our Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And those five books are called the books of the law because all the laws that are foundational to Jewish life and practice are found in those five books. And one of the things that is found over and over and over again throughout the Torah is laws regarding sacrifices. Like what sacrifices are required, when they should be offered, what should be sacrificed for what purpose. There's a lot of sacrifices in the Torah. And for us who don't come from a Jewish background, it can be a little mind-boggling. But one thing that is clear over and over and over again is that whenever animals are sacrificed, the animal needs to be spotless and without blemish. Exodus 12.5, your lamb must be an unblemished year-old male. Leviticus 1.10, if, however, one's offering is a burnt offering from the flock, from the sheep or the goat, he is to present an unblemished male. Leviticus 22.20, you must not present anything with a defect because they will not be accepted on your behalf. One of the main categories of sacrifice in the Torah is something called the sin offering. The people of Israel understood that in order for them to have a relationship with God, their sin had to be dealt with. So someone who had sinned would bring a, their spotless, unblemished sacrifice and the animal would be killed. The point being that death is what sin deserves. But this animal is dying in place of the person offering the sacrifice to cover their sin. And the culmination, the high point of that whole system was reached each year on the Day of Atonement. When the high priest would sacrifice two spotless goats. Before he could do that sacrifice, he had to offer a bull sacrifice just for his own personal sin. Then he would take two goats, and one he would take and he would sacrifice, and he would go into the very center of the temple. It was called the Holy of Holies. It was the place where God's presence manifestly dwelt with his people. The only person who could go in there was the high priest himself, and only on that one day of the year he would make this sacrifice. He would make that sacrifice to, to make atonement for, to cover over the sins of all the people. And the second goat, he would lay 
his hand on the head of the goat, and he would confess all the sins of all the people of Israel on that goat. And then they would carry it away from the camp, out into the wilderness, to symbolically carry the sins of the people away from the people. That goat was called the scapegoat. It's a term we still use today when we want to blame somebody else for something we did. The point being that the whole sacrificial system, all this killing of animals, was about dealing with the sins of the people. It's about providing a way for sin to be dealt with and for people to remain in relationship with a pure and holy God. It was a complex and costly system all for the purpose of taking away the sins of the people. Which makes it kind of startling when we get to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, and we read this. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. What? How? Like, what, what is all that Old Testament about? Like, what are, it's impossible for the blood of goats. Like, what was going on in the Old Testament? Impossible for the blood of goats to take away sins, and why were they doing it? Well, we see in the New Testament that the purpose for all those sacrifices was intended to point us forward to the one perfect sacrifice. A couple of verses later in Hebrews, we read this. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, that's Jesus, when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by one sacrifice, he had made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Similarly, Peter writes, For you know that it is not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Jesus, by going to the cross, takes away our sins. Right? In Peter's words, he redeems us from the empty way of life that we lived before we knew Jesus. The author of Hebrews' word, by going to the cross, Jesus made all those who believe in him perfect forever. But that only worked if Jesus was indeed sinless. We just sang the song, Is He Worthy? What made Jesus worthy was the fact that he had not sinned. One more verse, and I know I've thrown a lot of verses at you this morning. I think it's important that we grasp the big picture of all that's going on here and why it's so important that Jesus was sinless. So one more verse. You've probably heard it, probably heard me quote it before. It's one of my go-tos. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Because Jesus was sinless, and he went to the cross, he took our sin on himself. He became sin for us. And when he took our sin, he exchanged it. He, in exchange, he gave us his 
righteousness. When we turn away from our sins, when we trust in Jesus, God looks at us and he sees us as if we had lived the sinless, perfect life that Jesus lived. That truth then allows us to bring kind of the first two points of our sermon together. Yes, Jesus is king. And as king, he he deserved our complete and immediate obedience to all that he commands. Yet we all fail to obey him the way a king deserves. But because of his own sinless life, and his own death on the cross on our behalf, he's already paid the penalty for all the times that we will fail to obey him. Yes, we should should obey him as king. But we obey him not to earn his favor, but out of a love for what he has already done for us. If we really believe that Jesus is the sinless son of God who, who went to the cross to die a death he didn't deserve, all because he loves us, then our heart's desire should be to do whatever King Jesus commands. We go back to Hebrews 10.14 for one second. The author of Hebrews sums this up perfectly. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So he's already made a perfect forever. But we're also still being made holy. Get to the work of Jesus. We're already perfect in God's eyes. He looks at us and he sees Jesus' sinless life. But we're also still in the process of being made holy. We still fail. We still sin. We still fall short of perfect obedience to our king. So if you're here, you're watching online, and you've never trusted this Jesus, your sin needs to be dealt with, and the only way for it to be dealt with is through Jesus. By believing that his death on the cross was the perfect sacrifice that covered over your sins. If you've never trusted that, believe that, I would invite you, urge you to do that. Those of us who are here who who have trusted Jesus. As we said earlier, our, our heart should be to honor King Jesus. But we do so not in an effort to earn his favor. That will never work but out of a love for what he's already done for us on the cross, and with confidence that he is still in the process of making us holy. We work out our salvation, as Paul says, alongside the work of the Holy Spirit who who dwells in us as we obey King Jesus. Finally, let's briefly look at the final point in your outline this morning, which is the silence of Jesus. Continuing in verse 5 of our passage this morning, we read this. But they insisted. He, he stirred up all the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at this time. Basically, Pilate's in a spot where he doesn't want to deal with this. He's 
sees it's a no-win situation for him. He doesn't want to deal with it. And then he, he finds a way out. That Jesus is from Galilee. So he can send him off to Herod, who is in Jerusalem for the Passover. And, and Herod rules over the Galilean region on behalf of Rome. So Jesus kind of follows under Herod's jurisdiction instead, so Pilate can kind of get rid of Jesus and get rid of the problem. So he sends Jesus off to Herod. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased. Because for a long time, he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. So he plied him with many questions. But Jesus gave no answer. The chief priest and the teachers of the law were standing there, vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him, dressing him in an elegant robe. They sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. So here's Jesus. He's being bombarded with questions by Herod. He's being mocked and ridiculed by Herod's soldiers and by Herod himself. And his, his life hangs in their hands. He's at, his life is at their discretion. And yet we're told in the midst of all those questions, with his life hanging in the balance, Jesus gives no answer. He did not respond to Herod. Like most of us, at least I in this situation, would be vehemently pleading my innocence. We'd be arguing right, that we've done nothing wrong. But not Jesus. Jesus responds to these questions and these accusations with silence. In doing this, Jesus fulfills what Isaiah had prophesied about the coming Messiah when he said, He was oppressed and afflicted. He did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its sheared, so he did not open his mouth. Jesus is silent. Jesus would have been a terrible cable news commentator. Like on cable news, everything depends on who can argue their position the loudest and the most vehemently. But not Jesus. He's already stated his innocence. He knows that Herod is just there to try to see a sign that Herod's not interested in having honest discussion. And so Jesus doesn't engage. Jesus is confident of his standing before God. And that confidence in his standing before God gives Jesus freedom to not worry about his standing before Herod. I would just suggest that we have a lot to learn from Jesus here. Yes, we should be all for open and honest discussion with people we disagree with when they're up for open and honest conversation. But when we've made our position clear, and it's obvious that the person that you're disagreeing with is not interested in having honest dialogue, sometimes the best thing to do is emulate Jesus and be silent. That can be hard. We want to win the argument. We want to defend ourselves. We want to put the other person in their place and prove that they are wrong. 
for being honest, sometimes we want to do more than prove they're wrong. We want to humiliate them and make them feel like a dummy. And the, the internet and social media just make this all the worse. Because now you don't even have to look the person in the face. You can say whatever you want. You can call them whatever you want from the safety of a computer screen. Maybe it's just me. Right? But there's so many times that I, I want to prove that I'm right. I want to win the argument. And so I, I engage in the argument even though I know the other person is entrenched in their position and not interested in honestly exploring ideas together. I think if I like really examine my own heart, the root cause of, of that desire is that I care more deeply about the opinions and being validated before man than I do about being validated before God because of the work of Jesus. I want to win the argument to, to increase my stature before man. Rather than thinking about how I can increase my stature before God. Here's my encouragement. The next time you start to feel that anger well up inside you because someone on TV or someone online or someone at work makes some comment that you feel the need to respond to, to ask yourself a couple, a couple questions. Question one, is my desire to respond here rooted in a desire to honor God or to increase my own stature? Question two, is there hope of having genuine, honest, open conversation with this person on this topic? And if the conversation's happening through a comment box on Facebook, the answer is no. There's no honest, open dialogue going on there. You may say, like, well, look, it's not me I'm defending. I don't care about me. Like, I'm, 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 they're mocking God, and I'm defending Jesus. Like, I'm being righteous and holy. Like, here's the thing. Jesus had enough confidence in the sovereignty of God to not defend himself when he was mocked and ridiculed. He trusted, right, that God heard and that God would deal with it on his time. Jesus was mocked, and he didn't feel the need to defend himself because he trusted the sovereignty of God enough to remain silent. And the last question is this. You engage in hard conversations, arguments, do you trust the sovereignty of God enough to remain silent when it's called for? There's no hope in having a fruitful conversation. Do you trust God's sovereignty enough to remain silent when that's the best course of action? Or do you feel God's in jeopardy if you don't win this argument? Jesus trusted God to vindicate himself. Do you trust God enough to vindicate himself? Or do you feel like you need to fight every battle on God's behalf? Jesus, here's a model for us. When there's no fruit to be had in having the argument, how to respond.
he is silent. We do the same thing. We are the confident that Jesus is king. And that one day he will return as king. And he will display himself as the king of the universe when he returned. And he will judge all those who made mocking, ridiculing comment about him. Untrue statement about us. He will judge. Because he is the sinless king. We can place our confidence in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can be here and worship you. We can worship King Jesus. Thank you that you reign as king over the universe, that it does not depend on random chance, it does not depend on our own wisdom or insight, but that you are king. You have a good plan for all things. You are bringing that plan to pass. That nothing can stand in the way of your plan being accomplished. Father, when we look out at the world and we see things that are so clearly against your will, that are so clearly sin. so clearly against the way you created us in the world. Would we not, Father, would we not give in to despair? Would we not be tempted to throw in the towel? Would we not bemoan the state of the world that's lost but would we remember all that Jesus endured? How the disciples must have felt like everything was lost and the state of the world was falling apart. And yet because you were sovereign king, your will was done and Jesus rose from the dead and he now reigns as king. Would we find never-ending hope and joy and confidence in the fact that Jesus reigns as the sovereign, all-powerful king of the universe? That one day he will return and he will set all things right. He will undo all wrongs. He will wipe every tear. He will fix every pain. Well, until that day comes, 
Would we be good ambassadors of our King? Would we live lives seeking to represent our King in this fallen and broken world? Would our motivation for our actions always be how do I best represent my King and not how do I best represent myself? Thank you that Jesus is King. That we live in light of that truth each and every day. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Quick reminder at 10.30, Sunday school will start downstairs for the kids. 10.45, Sunday school will start up here for adults. And then at 11.45, we'll meet back in here for our quarterly congregational meeting. We encourage you to be part of that. If you go this morning, if you leave here, would you go to a very visceral awareness that Jesus is King who reigns over all. Even if you face trial and hardship, Jesus is still King with a good plan for you and your life. You are dismissed.